Turn in your Bibles to the book of First Samuel, chapter number 1. First Samuel, chapter 1. What a blessing to be in the house of the Lord with you today. And I'm, I'm especially blessed that the Lord is here. Amen. We don't just say that. Uh, he inhabits the praise of His people. And when we're gathered together in His name, He's present there and He's working. And what a precious God that we have. I don't know if you know it, but you didn't just walk into a, a ceremony this morning. It's not, it's not what this is. And um, if, if you've never been uh, in the house of God in a place where they know the Lord, you might not know what you've walked into. You might think, well, where's all the candles and the incense and where's the big golden chairs and all those things? We don't have any of that around here. Uh, for one, there's, there's much about that that's not biblical. But then, two, that's not what church is about. It's about the Lord, His presence in the lives of His people, His willingness to work in our hearts and in our lives. And I'm just so thankful to get to be here with you today. I'm thankful the Lord's with us today. And I'm excited at what God is going to do. You know, God has a plan for your life. And you may have not known that. It could be nobody's ever told you that. But God has a plan for your life. He knows who you are. He doesn't just know you exist. I mean, He knows more about you than you know about you. And He loves you and He cares about you. You might say, well, preacher, how, how could God love me? Well, I've asked the same question about myself. Uh, but I know I can look at the testimony and the truth of Scripture and tell that God loves you and loves me. Because the Bible says in the book of Romans that God commendeth His love toward us. Now, how did He do that? How did He show that He loves us? Well, the Bible says in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, he paid the ultimate price and cost for you and for I. Uh, listen, there's, I know people I wouldn't walk across the street for. Amen? But He left the glories of heaven robed himself in flesh, walked amongst a hateful and hostile world, and then of his own will and of his own accord, I, I know there's some would like to imagine that that thing of Calvary was just getting out of God's hands, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says he knew what was going to happen. He set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, made his mind up. He knew where he was going. And the Bible says that no man took his life from him, but he laid his life down. And so here's what he did. He left glory, robed himself in flesh, walked amongst this world, and then climbed up on a cross and died in your place. And he did all that because he loves you, because he cares about you, because he has a plan for your life. And oh my, the great things God desires for you and to do in your life and in your family. If you'll just know him as your savior, if you're lost here today, he'll save you. Uh, he'll change your life. He'll pardon you of your sins. He'll forgive you of your sins. He will indwell you by His Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, preacher, that sounds scary. No, I promise you, hey, you're, you ain't even living until you have the life of God. And He'll give you life in your heart and in your life. And He'll change your life and give you something to live for and some purpose in your life and some joy in your life. And as Maze Jackson, you say, all this in heaven too. Uh, listen, I, I'm not, there's a lot to be said about heaven, but hey, he's, he's good for me and good to me before I've ever will set foot inside of heaven. And God wants to do all that for you. Uh, but you're going to have to receive Him as your Savior if you've never been saved. And you might be sitting here and saying, well, preacher, I am saved. I know that I'm a Christian. I, I believed on the Lord and repent of my sins. I've asked Him to forgive me and save me. I know that I am a Christian. But my life is a mess right now. Well, listen, that's not what God desires for you. And if you'll li yield your life back to the Lord... Uh, you know, listen, the greatest messes I've made in my life have been for me wrestling the reins of my life away from God and saying... I'm going to run this thing. I'm going to do this thing. But when I will just yield my life to the Lord, I mean, God does amazing things far beyond what I could ever hope or expect or even imagine to do. That's the kind of God that we have. And that's the kind of God that wants to be your God, your Savior, your Lord in your life. 
And so, uh, listen, I, I just I counsel you this morning. If you don't know Him, don't leave here without knowing Him. You say, well, preacher, how can I get to know Him? Well, the Bible makes abundantly clear, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, what does it mean to call upon someone? I've got a message, and I guess it'll get preached here in a moment. But what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, it's no different than it would be with anyone else. If I called upon your name, if I asked you for help with something, what I'm doing is I am exhibiting a faith in you and your ability to help me. I'm believing in your presence in your life that you are alive to help me. I'm acknowledging that I cannot help myself or I wouldn't be calling upon you. And I'm asking and trusting and depending upon you in your grace and your patience, your loving kindness to do for me what I cannot do for myself. You know, that's exactly what happens when a sinner comes to Jesus Christ. They come to Him believing a couple things. One, believing He is capable of saving them. A sinner wouldn't come to Christ if they didn't believe Christ could save them. Uh, But He is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto Him by Jesus Christ. And so a sinner comes to Christ because they believe that He's able to save them. Not only that, they believe that they cannot save themselves. I promise you this, even if, if you could ever figure out a way to get to heaven without God, you would have already tried it. You would have tried to get there without Him. That's how your flesh is and my flesh is. We, we naturally recoil against authority and God in our life. But here's the truth. You can't save yourself. And I can't save myself. Uh, the, I'm saved today. I, I, the, sometimes I'll hear preachers say, if I'm saved today, I know that I'm saved. I have no question about that. But it's not because I'm a preacher. That might count against me. I don't know. I get to heaven. They might say, you a Baptist preacher? Your line's over there. Go stand. <laughs> No, it's not because I'm a Baptist preacher. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's not because I was raised in church or have some kind of pedigree or heritage or any of those things. I was as lost as the worst drunkard walking down the street. I was as lost as the most broken addict that you would find. I was as lost as the prostitute and the politician. Somebody say amen to that. Going to the same hell they were. And then God showed me I was a lost sinner through the power of His Word, the testimony of His Word. And he convicted me and convinced me that I was a sinner, that I couldn't save myself. And as a 10-year-old boy, now listen, if I could do that as a 10-year-old boy, you could do that. As a 10-year-old boy, I just agreed with God that I was lost and couldn't save myself. And I believed that he was alive. That's why I prayed to him. I wasn't just reciting abracadabra. I, I talked to him. I prayed to him and I said, Lord, I can't save me. Here's what I believe I said. If my memory serves me, I said, Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm dying and going to hell. I don't want to die and go to hell. Lord, would you please forgive me and save me? Now, I don't know where your education, I don't know where your intelligence, I don't know where your aptitude lies, but I promise you, you could pray a prayer that simple and mean it from your heart. And so I asked the Lord to forgive me and to save me. And you know what? He did. He did that. He saved me on that day, December 1st, 1997, as a 10-year-old boy. He saved me and He changed my life. Now, if you'd looked on the outside, you wouldn't have seen a lot of difference. I was a 10-year-old boy. I was raised in a good Bible-believing home. But if you could have seen on the inside what God did, you would have been amazed. And then the change that He's made in my life from that day till now. I'll tell you this, man. I wouldn't want to try to live without Him. He's a precious God, and He'll do that in your life if you'll just come to Him by faith and accept Christ as your Savior. He will save you. You have God's eternal word on that. He will save you, and He will change your life and transform you if you'll just simply come to Him. Now, here's what most people do. I don't know if I'll preach or not. Here's what most people... Well, I don't know. I'm constrained this morning. I am. Now, here's what, here's what most people would do. Most people would say, well, God, I will help you save me. But God doesn't need your help. 
in saving you. And in fact, do you know what would happen if God asked for your help in saving you? Then your salvation would not be in Him, it would be in you. It would be in you. Now, here's the problem with that. Because you're not always going to be what you ought to be. I'm sure not always what I ought to be. But my salvation is not vested in or resting in my ability to do good works or to keep promises that I make towards God or to turn over a new leaf. We've just come across the new year. Everybody's, man, all them leaf's been turned over. Amen. And that some of them already been flipped back. Amen. It would be, it would be dependent upon that. Well, that's no hope. That's no peace. Beyond that, I don't have the ability to save myself. You see, here's the reason a person needs to be saved because we are all born sinners. Now, here's what that means. We are born alienated from God, and it is our natural position to be contrary to God. Isn't it amazing? You don't have to teach a child how to disobey. You don't have to. They just know instinctively, sometimes professionally, how to disobey. You don't have to teach a child how to do that. He just knows instinctively how to do that very thing. Well, you know why that is? It's not because your child's a bad child or my child's a bad child, but it's because they have sin natures. Just like I have a sin nature. It's the very thing that makes me want to walk contrary to God sometimes is because I have a sin nature. And you know that sin nature makes me sin. Now, that doesn't mean that it takes my agency away from me. It doesn't mean I don't make the decision. But what it does mean is the reason I'm inclined to make that decision is because I am a sinner. Famous preacher once years ago made the comment on uh, national television. He said, we we uh, are sinners because we sin. That's not true. You're not a sinner because you sin. If you had never committed a single unrighteous deed in your entire life, you'd still die and go to hell. You know why? Because you have a sin nature. It's who you are. It's what you are. Here's how Ephesians chapter 2 describes it. It says we are dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead. God is light and life. We are dead and dark. That's who we are. We are steeped and birthed and born in that condition. Now you say, well, preacher, does that mean there's nothing I can do to get to God? Well, no, the Bible teaches abundantly clear that indeed we can come to the Lord. Uh, the Bible makes it clear uh, that uh, if any man's going to come unto the Father, it's going to be by Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible's abundantly clear that we are to come unto Him. If any labor and, uh, you know, are, are weary and labor uh, among you and, and need rest, He says, come unto me, I will give you rest. Uh, here's the truth of the matter. You have to be willing to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn His approval and you don't have to earn His favor, but you do have to recognize that in your lost condition, you will die in your sins and you'll go to hell. Uh, the question could be asked, well, what does a man have to do to die and go to hell? And religion has all sorts of answers to that. Uh, a great many religions would say, well, just don't give to our organization and that'll get you there. Uh, some would say, well, don't, you know, uh, perform our rites and our ceremonies, our sacraments, and, and that'll get you there. Uh, others would, would say, well, if you don't subscribe to our dogma or to our concepts, then, then you'll die and go to hell. But you know what the Bible teaches? Say, preacher, what would I have to do to die and go to hell? Hell's a terrible place. What would I have to die to do to die and go there? I'll tell you this, absolutely nothing. If you just die, if you're here lost today, if you've never received Christ as your Savior and you die in that condition, you'll die and go to hell. You don't have to do things to deserve to die and go to hell. You and I, we already deserve to die and go to hell. And so recognizing our lost condition, well, what can be done about that? Here we are, we are sinners by nature. And we have committed sin because of that sin nature. We have trespassed against God. We've offended Him. And you say, well, preacher, I don't owe God anything. Well, everybody owes God everything because He's the Creator. You wouldn't exist without Him. 
just by nature of Him being God and who He is, He has authority over us. But we have thumbed our nose at that authority. We've said, God, I'm not going to follow You. I'm not going to walk with You. And we have sinned. We have trespassed against Him. I don't know what kind of home that you grew up in, but I, I did grow up in a home with rules and with consequences. And my daddy, his word was law when we were growing up. And my daddy's a wonderful man. He's precious, and, and, and I love him. And, and he's got given all y'all diabetes here in the church, <laughs> passing out that candy. A far cry from who he was when I was growing up. Man, when I was growing up, he was 12 foot tall and mean and everything. No, he had authority in our home. And when dad would say something, it was law. And here's what would have happened. If he had said, son, don't do this, it's wrong. And I'd said, well, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do it anyway. Some of y'all are laughing. <laughs> you say, well, you wouldn't be here, preacher. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but here's what would happen. There'd be consequences. Why? Because his word was law. And he would, would enact those consequences in our Life. Why? Because if he did not do that, if there was not payment made, if there were not consequences, one, we would have just persisted in our rebellion. But here's the second thing. We would have learned he was a liar and his word didn't mean anything. But the Bible tells me that it's impossible for God to lie. So God says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. That, that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That, that there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. In other words, if I walk contrary to God, if I sin against Him, that brings death into my life as a natural consequence. Now, there's no clearer example of this than Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They sinned, they ate of the fruit, and as a consequence of that, death became a reality in their life. And you say, well, preacher, what does that have to do with me? Well, Romans chapter 5 tells me it has a lot to do with you. Because Romans chapter number 5 tells me that, that uh, you know, death passed upon all men in that all have sinned. That by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men in that all have sin. He's where you got that sin nature from. You hit him right in the mouth, you get to heaven. I'll be standing in line with you. He's the reason. But here's the fact of the matter. God has holiness. He is holiness. He is a righteous God. And he has said the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now you and I have sinned. What can be done about that? What's going to be done about that? I'll tell you this. I have no solution for that. No amount of going to church would fix that. Uh, no amount of giving to a religious organization or giving even the local church would 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 change that. I could baptize you. We've got a baptistry up here, and, and I could baptize you. I could dunk you a hundred times. That wouldn't do anything about your sins. How How do I make things right with God? Well, let me tell you again about when I was growing up. When I would sin against my father, there would have to be punishment. We would have to be punished because of that. Well, in the same way, with God, there's a punishment for sin. There's a punishment for sin. Someone has to be punished because God's sin or God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's law has been transgressed against. You say, well, preacher, what can I do about that? Could I pay for that? No. Here's the problem. How are you going to pay for your sins but also escape the punishment of your sins? You say, well, preacher, I'll pay for my sins. Well, you could die and go to hell and try. But I will tell you this, that God's holiness and His righteousness so far outweighs what you could give with your life that if you died and went to hell, it would be an eternal punishment. You'd never pay for that sin. Never once. God's justice would have been upheld, but you'd never satisfy, you'd never repay what you've done wrong, even by dying and going to hell. Well, here's what do we need. Well, here's the problem. I can give my life for my sins, but my life 
is an unclean life. My life is an impure life. My life is an unholy life. My life is a guilty life. And so how can I give my guilty life in payment to a holy God whose holy law and word has been trespassed against? It cannot pay it. Here's what we do need, though. Here's what might do it. If you could take a holy life that had never committed any sin, that didn't have a sin nature, that had never done anything contrary to this holy God that's been offended. And then if you could somehow take that holy life and give it to the unholy sinner, if you could somehow take that righteousness and and just, I don't know, maybe we could just put it on the account of that sinner that has sinned against God. Maybe then the sinner could escape free. God's holiness could be satisfied. God's justice could be exercised. And then all of a sudden this problem that has existed that no one could overcome could be overcome. That's a pretty good idea. In fact, i got to admit to you, it ain't my idea. In fact, that's God's idea. Because that's exactly what God did. You couldn't pay for your sins. You remember I told you a moment ago, you have to be willing to confess to the Lord, I can't save myself. I can't change me. I can't help me. I can't rescue me. And part of that is recognizing that someone else must do it for you because you don't have the ability to. And guess who that person is? That person is Jesus Christ. Here's what God did. God Himself left the glories of heaven, compressed compressed a God big enough that the, the universe is meted out in the, in the span of His hand. If God held His hand up, it would be bigger than the universe Himself. Miracle of all miracles. He condensed Himself to the span of a virgin's womb, was robed in flesh, was born into this world, made like unto men. That's what the book of Galatians said. But now, because He didn't have an earthly father, remember, where does our sin nature come from? Wherefore, as by one man sinned into the world, all ladies said, Amen. And death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, and that all have sinned. It is through Adam that the sin nature comes from. But you know, Jesus, He didn't have an earthly father. He was begotten or conceived of the Holy Ghost. So His nature that had already been holy, remained holy. And He walked amongst this world. We could talk about all the good things He did. They're wonderful, and the Bible's full of them. And I'm not dismissing all of those or any of those even. But the greatest thing that He did is, in that 33 and a half years, He lived a perfect, holy, sinless life. He never once committed a sin. And then you say, well, preacher, that's wonderful. Surely God would just uh, take him, scoop him up to glory and put him back on the throne. No, that's not what happened. In fact, the Bible says that knowing what it would take to save you and to save me, he took that perfect, precious, impeccable, holy life and then allowed himself to be defamed, to be charged, to be slandered, to be lied about, to be spit upon, to be scourged, to be buffeted, to be stripped naked and beaten and then to be executed like a common criminal. You say, well, preacher, that's terrible. Well, that's what you and I deserve. If you saw sin as it really is, that's what you and I deserve. But let me tell you something even deeper than that. There when he hung upon the cross, the Bible tells us that the entire earth went dark. And some would say, well, you know, that's just a, a, a lunar eclipse. And I don't know how in the middle of the month of April in a lunar calendar when the sun's way over here and the moon's way over here, you could ever get a lunar eclipse out of that. 
And I don't even know how you'd explain that because Luke says it was the entire face of the earth that experienced it. And then I don't even know how you'd explain it beyond that because the Bible says it was for the span of three hours. And in the midst of that time when God literally blotted out the sun, some commentators have described it by saying that it was like God drew a veil around what he was doing in the life of his son. The Bible says, the book of 2 Corinthians, God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Not you and me, he knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's what happened. He became your sin on the cross of Calvary. He became your sin. He didn't just bear it, he became it. Here's the way I would describe it. If God had reached back his hand to strike the sinner deserving of that judgment, Instead of hitting you or me, he hit his own son. The Bible says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There in that time, he became sin for us. One of the most amazing things that happened there on the cross, you know, there's seven things the Lord says when he's dying on the cross. One of the things that he says, he cries out, and it's, our, our Bible preserves for us how it would have sounded, that it would have sounded like this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Don't get nervous. I didn't just speak in tongues. Amen. You find it your King James Bible. But here's what it means. It means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, why did he do that? Why did he cry that? What does that mean? Well, remember, because you and I are sinners, we can't have a relationship with God. We don't have a right to have a relationship with God. How could a holy God have a relationship with unholy sinners like you and like me? How could he do that? It'd be impossible, wouldn't it? So here's what God did. God took his perfect, holy, righteous son and he made him sin for you and for I. And then he judged that sin. We could maybe say it this way. I've often noted, you know, God, God's omniscient, right? Omniscient. Not, not, that's not a Dodge Omni. That's omniscient. Omniscient means he is all knowing. He knows all things. Have you ever wondered how an all knowing God or why an all knowing God would ask a question? You ever asked a question and immediately regretted it afterwards? <laughs> I've asked questions sometimes and then thought, I know the answer to that before they even answer. Why would God ever ask a question? Remember who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel. Why would he ask that question? Well, that's what we would grammatically call a rhetorical question. Now, here's what a rhetorical question is. It is a question that is, is asked, not in the pursuit of knowledge for the person that is asking, but rather so that either the person that is answering or the people that are within earshot might learn a truth thereby. For instance, I, you might have looked at your child, especially if you got a teenager, you might have done something. You might, you might have looked at him and said, are you stupid? And you weren't looking for an answer, amen? You already knew the answer. God, God <laughs> cries out on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, he knew why. But here's what he wanted. He wanted you and I to hear him ask that question. And he wanted you and I to consider the answer to that question. Well, now, what is the answer to that question? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. Here I am. And I am, am, as far as a relationship with God is concerned, I am God forsaken. I don't have a relationship with God. I don't know Him. I can't talk to Him. I can't look to Him or lean on Him. I'm a lost sinner with no relationship to God. Here's the Son. And He has the most relationship anybody could have with God. That's his father. But something must have happened there on the cross because when he cried out, he didn't say, my father, my father. He said, my God, my God. 
Why is that? Well, something evidently was severed in that moment. Something evidently was disrupted in that moment. Something evidently was happening in that moment. Here's what was happening. God, in judging, the Bible says that He is a pure eyes than to look on sin, not iniquity. In making Christ your sin and my sin, in judging Him as our sin, God turned His back in that moment upon His precious Son. I love, I, in fact, I was reading and studying this idea of forsaking and what forsaking means. And it's amazing because the Bible describes in the book of Psalms, and it's echoed again in the, in, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, a, a passage that says that thou wilt not leave thine holy one to, uh, and forsake thine holy one and leave him his soul to see corruption. Here's what it literally means. God, even in forsaking Christ, didn't forsake Christ. But in a sort of fashion, because you and I should have been forsaken, while understanding and knowing what He would do and knowing that Christ would raise from the dead and knowing that the relationship with the Son would be present and would be in force, He in that moment judicially made Jesus our sin and punished His own Son. John chapter number 3 describes it this way. Most of you, even if you've not been in church very much, you could probably quote this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So here is the perfect, sinless, holy life of Christ. But He is judged, condemned, and 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 destroyed, um, executed as a sinner. What happened to that righteousness? What are we going to do with that righteousness? Who's that righteousness for? Well, it's for the unrighteous. See, that's what I mean when I say you might have misunderstood what you walked into this morning. You might have you might have come in this morning and thought, well, where's the candles and where's the incense and where's the the altar boys and where's all the all the you know imagery and where's the all the different things and and that might have been what you were expecting because that might be what you think that religion is, and that might be what you think church is. You might think it's a place for righteous people to hang out and talk about how righteous they are. That might be what you thought you were walking into. You might have thought, well, I'm going to church where all the good people go, and not Walridge, you ain't. <laughs> Son, they've had to empty some county jail cells to fill these pews. Now, let me tell you what this really is. This is the place where all the unrighteous people who have acknowledged they're unrighteous and can't save themselves and can't help themselves have gone to a righteous God and said, Lord, I can't be righteous on my own, but if you'll make me righteous and give me a relationship with you, then I'll be your child. And so here's what happens. All that righteousness, all that holiness, all that perfect, all that life <laughs> was granted unto those that will come unto Jesus Christ, admitting they can't save themselves and asking Him to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Here's how John chapter number 1 describes it. That, that uh, to as many as, uh, that, that, mm, But to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. Even them which believe on His name. I mean, that's as crystal clear as it gets. I, a child of hell can become a son of God. How does that happen? Well, by receiving Jesus Christ and believing upon His name. Now, there's a problem, though. i got to admit to you, there's a problem. Here's God, and He's got this righteousness. It's banked. It belongs to Jesus Christ. It's His. But Christ has died as a sinner and been judged as a sinner. And God's still far and distant away from mankind. We still can't approach to Him. We still can't talk to Him. We still can't know Him. And that's good in everything that He has that righteousness. 
But how does that help me? I've got to have somebody that can get me to God so that I can ask God to forgive me and save me and so that I can know Him personally. How could that happen? Well, wouldn't you know it? God has an answer for everything. And so the Bible tells us that He did not stay dead. Though He was crucified, though He did die physically, literally for our sins, the Bible says that He was laid in a borrowed tomb and three days later, and I can't, I can't describe everything that happened in those three days. I don't know that I understand everything that happened in those three days. But here's one of the things I do understand. I understand that death has jurisdiction over a man because of sin. And I understand this, that Christ is so righteous and so eternal that whenever the judgment of God was finished, are you listening to me? When it was finished, when he had poured everything there was to pour out, when he, <laughs> when he had poured out everything there was to pour out, when Jesus had drank the dregs of the cup of the judgment of God, he was still alive. His righteousness still existed. It still subsisted. We find this, that once the sin that he had become was exhausted, was expunged, was was judged, and was dealt with, death didn't have any authority over him anymore. Because death, death only has authority where there's sin, right? The wages of sin is death. Well, see, here's the problem. We stay sinners until the day we die, at least in the way we live and practice sometimes. But now he died, and he exhausted sin and exhausted God's judgment. Death no longer had jurisdiction over him. And here's how the book of Acts tells us it happened. The Bible says he was raised from the dead because he was not able to be holden of it. You know, almost like if a person was arrested and they were kept for a, a period of time, but then there were no charges that could be laid against them. And so they had to say, I'm sorry, we can't hold you any longer. We have no authority to hold you any longer. We're going to let you go. He was not able to be holden of death. And so here's what happens. The Bible tells us that on the third day, He raised incorruptible, powerful, victorious from the grave. He got victory over death. You and I can't get victory over death because we're sinners. Death has every bit of authority over us because we are sinners. In and of ourselves, we can't defeat death. But the Bible says it behooved Him to be made like unto men, that He took upon Him not the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham, and it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And he was made flesh and blood, that he might, that he might defeat him that had the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver them who their, through their whole lifetime were subject to bondage under fear of death. He rose victorious. Now, that does a couple things for me. One, it tells me this, that his life is such that it overcomes sin, it overcomes death, it is not temporal life, it is eternal life. But it does a second thing. It gives me somebody to ask. Sometimes we'll go to the, these home improvement stores, you know, because stuff breaks. Sometimes your house falls down. Sometimes big holes blow up in your yard. And, and sometimes you'll go to, a, go to a home improvement store. And you know what's frustrating? To have a question but not be able to find anybody to ask. Let me tell you something. If they ever put hide and seek in the Olympics... Home Depot and Lowe's going to struggle. They're going to have... All them people's going to disappear. 
But no, I mean, I say that tongue in cheek. Sometimes, though, you know, you'll be walking through a store and you'll have something you need to ask and you can't find nobody. And it don't matter that you know what's wrong. It doesn't matter that you know that the answer is somewhere there in the store. It doesn't matter. All that matters is you don't have nobody to ask and nobody to help you find what you can't find and get what you can't get. Somebody has to be there. One of the things that happened whenever Christ rose from the dead, the Bible says that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he ever liveth to make intercession for you and for I. That we have a great high priest and apostle of our profession, Jesus Christ. He's passed into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Guess what? We found somebody to ask. Now here's this distant God, right, that I can't get to or I couldn't get to. But here's how the Old Testament book of Job describes it. Job talked about his his uh, breakdown in his relationship with the Lord. And he said this, Oh, that there were a daysman betwixt us, a mediator betwixt us, an advocate betwixt us, an intercessor, somebody that could go between me and God because I can't get to God. He's holy. He's righteous. I'm rotten. I'm sinful. I need somebody that can reach a hand out and grab my hand and somebody that can reach a hand up and grab his hand and get me to God. Who's that person? The Bible says this, there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. See, he can grab my hand as the son of man. And he can grab his hand as the son of God. He can get me to a God that I, as a child of hell, should have no right to ever be able to get to. In his righteousness, in his holiness. And here's all it takes. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's why it works. That's why it's real. That's why it's true. That's why it's what you need if you've never done it. Here, let me give you a little more good news, and then I I guess I'll close. You say, preacher, I I appreciate everything you said this morning. It was a good Sunday school review, but I I know all that. Raised in church my whole life. Sat, molded into a church pew. Preacher, I, I know all that. Can I remind you of something? Do you remember what John says in the book of 1 John? Now, you and I, we may know, feel like we know a lot about the Bible, but we probably don't know as much as John the Apostle did. He said, we have handled the word of life. Our eyes have seen him, our ears have heard him. And man, he, he knew the Bible. And here's what he said. Now, you might say, well, preacher, I, I got saved many years ago, and so, you know, one of these days, me and God, we're cool, I'll see him in heaven, everything will be fine. But you know, that's not the life that God saved you to when he saved you. He didn't save you just so he could say sayonara to you. He saved you so that he could transform your life and change your life and help you to live in such a way that other men might see Christ in your life and see that God can do for them what he's done for you. And you might have been astray from God, wayward from God. You might say, well, preacher, my life's really, it's not been what it ought to be. You would maybe say this, preacher, I'm saved. I was a sinner. I called upon the Lord. He saved me. He changed my life. But I got out into sin again. What do I need to do? Well, now there's some that would say, well, you need to go and you need to get saved again. But here's the problem. When God saved me, He didn't save me because I promised I would would be good. He knows you and I well enough, not credit and countenance that. I'm saved by His Word, by the Word promise. He promised He'd save me and that He would give unto me not temporary life, not resilient life, but eternal life. So I don't think what I need is to get saved again. I think... Even saved individuals, Christians, I think they disobey the Lord and dishonor the Lord and walk contrary to Him sometimes. I know I'm guilty of that. So what can I do? Well, 
you don't have to go and get resaved, but you know what you will find? You'll find the first person, the, the person that got you out of your first mess, he's the same person gets you out of this mess. Here's how John said it. I mentioned him a moment ago. There's some people who say, well, preacher, I just never sin. And I, I, I wish you'd teach me how. <laughs> no, John said this. He was dealing with a group of people that also believed that they could live without sinning. And he said, if any man say he hath no sin, he lies and does not the truth. He's deceived himself. You see, people that think they never sin, uh, it's not that that they are righteous, it's that they are deluded. They've deceived themselves into believing that. But it's obviously and biblically not true. We do. Saved people do sin. John, when he writes the book of 1 John, he's writing to believers. Over and over again, he calls them beloved, beloved, beloved. He's writing to believers. And he says, you know, if we say we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. He said, that's obviously not true. Of course we sin. Of course Christians sin. Of course, of course church going people sin. And you, you, if you came here thinking you'd find a place without sinners, I'm sorry. You missed it. Try the Waffle House. I'm not, that's not what you found here today. But here's what you have found. You've not found people who have all the answers, but you have found people who have the answers. And you've not found people that never sin, but you have found people that have found a Savior. The Bible says, not that we'll never sin, of course we'll sin, but here's what we do when we do sin, if we confess our sin. Now, it never tells us to confess that to a priest or a human being, like an earthly individual, a father so-and-so, a brother so-and-so, no. But if we confess our sins unto the Lord. If we confess our sins, He, talking about the Lord, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He goes on to say, and He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, if you have sinned against God in your life, guess what? You need to come to Him and ask for forgiveness. Not because you're not a Christian anymore, but because you as a child have been disobedient to a Heavenly Father. You've dishonored Him in the way that you've lived. You're not the only one. It's amazing. Some people think they're, they're, some people think they have copyrighted failure. They think they are the, the absolute most proprietary, they're the first person that's ever felt like a failure. And I know you, listen, all of us sin. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the fact of the matter is, if you've sinned, if you've messed up in your life, if you'll come to the Lord and confess that sin to Him and ask His forgiveness, preacher, but I'm unfaithful. I know, but He is faithful. Preacher, it just wouldn't be just. But he's always just. He is both just and the justifier of them that come unto him by Jesus Christ. We, hey, listen, we already went through all this, didn't we? How can it be just and the justifier? He's already dealt with sin when he sent his son to Calvary to die for you. So he has already addressed that sin. It's simply, if you're saved already, a matter of the relationship being restored to the way that it ought to be. And guess what? If you'll come to him, he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. <laughs> my father, I, you know, I, I never, I never, my father was always so good to us. He was, he never hurt us. He never harmed us. He never, and, and I'll tell you this. There's a lot of times that I feared the displeasure of my father. But I never, I never feared the desertion of my father. I knew there'd be times I would disappoint him and times that I would grieve him and times that me and him couldn't be okay because I had done things that dishonored him. And that was a problem between me and him. And, and that had to be dealt with. But I never worried that he was going to throw me away. I mean, maybe my brother, but not me. <laughs> I never worried about that. 
Because I knew no matter what, He loves me and He's my Father. I may have dishonored Him and I may have displeased Him and I may have shamed Him and I may have hurt Him, but nothing's going to change the fact that He's my Father. You know, that same reality is true concerning your heavenly Father. So if you're here today and your life is in pieces and your life is a mess, I want to tell you the same answer is still the same answer. And the same God that loved you then still loves you now. If you're here lost without Christ, He loves you and He wants to save you and change your life. And if you're here and you know the Lord, but your life, has your relationship with Him has been disrupted through your disobedience and your life is, is a mess, if, if it's shambles, I'm here to tell you that that same God that loved you enough to go to the cross of Calvary still loves you today still cares about you today, still has a plan for your life today. Preacher, I messed up. God's done with me. No, 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 no. God's never done with you. Do you draw a breath? God ain't done with you. Do you draw a breath? God's not done with you. He has a plan for your life. But here's what it's going to take. You're going to have to come unto Him. You're going to have to let God fix things that you can't fix. Make things right that you can't make right. And just as it was when you came to Him as a lost sinner and asked Him to forgive you and save you, you're going to have to let Him do for you what you can't do for yourself. To restore your relationship with Him, your testimony, your walk with Him, your joy. (laughs) Your joy. God can give you joy. And come unto Him and let Him do for you what you can't do for yourself. That's, That's the kind of God that showed up today. That's the kind of God that's that's even here present right now and working in your life. You said... Preacher, I can't see him. No, but I bet you feel him this morning. I bet I bet he's speaking to your heart this morning. And if he is, it must be because he loves you, he's interested in you, and he has a plan for your life. You remember how we started all this a hundred hours ago? God loves you. God has a plan for your life. How do I know that, preacher? God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know that God this morning? If you don't know Him, you can know Him. And you might know Him this morning, but it might have been a while since you've walked with Him. And I want you to know He still loves you. He's still got a plan for your life if you'll just come unto Him. Let's bow our heads together this morning. Musicians going to come and play. Here's what I think would be a good thing. If there's somebody that God laid on your heart this morning, and I, I don't know, maybe God dealt with you about something. Maybe your heart's just burdened for somebody. Your heart's broken for them because they're either lost without Christ and don't realize how much God loves them and what God wants to do for them. Or maybe they're saved, but their life is in pieces. And you say, well, preacher, I, I, I want God to change their life. and I want God to transform them. And I want God to get victory in their life. Why don't you come pray for them this morning? The altar's already full. There's many down here praying. Why don't you come pray for them this morning? And then I want to ask you this question. How many would say, Preacher, God spoke to my heart about something directly, distinctly this morning. If that's you, would you slip your hand up? Just let me pray for you. I won't embarrass you. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. All over the room I see hands. Let me ask you a second question. Is what he dealt with you about important enough for you to be willing to deal with him? If you're here lost and undone, and I have no doubt that some of the hands that went up were of saved people, and it's always possible that some of the hands that went up were of lost people. Whatever it is that God has spoken to your heart about, evidently the God of heaven is interested in you and loves you and has a plan for your life. I wonder if you're here today without Christ. 
Do you care enough about your own eternal soul that you'd come to Him? You'll have to come to Him. He won't make you get saved. But if you'll come to Him, He'll save you. We're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to play the piano a little bit. Now's the time to be doing business with God. Lord, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.